David Mizrahi has made it his life's work to help women diagnosed with ovarian cancer and children undergoing treatment for leukemia. After finishing his postgraduate studies in 2014, David set his sights on completing his Doctor of Philosophy, looking specifically at the role of physical activity in childhood cancer survivors. As a result, he has been given the opportunity to travel to St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis, USA, to complete his Fulbright Scholarship. In this special two-part episode, we chat to David about his life's work, learnings, challenges, and his hopes for the future. You're listening to Normless, a podcast hosted by Hayden Kelly and Jack Hasler. David Mizrahi, good to have you on the podcast, mate. Um, So we're really excited for this episode in particular, I think. Um, you know, there's a hell of a lot of substance to your your profile and your your resume. So this should be a good one. But the thing that sticks out for me when I was going through your Twitter profile, I saw that you're a new dad, mate. So uh, yeah, how's life as a new dad? Ah, uh, no, thanks for that. No, it's it's so good. So my little boy Evans just turned nine months. Um, yeah, it's totally different. You know, you got a whole lot less free time than you normally have. You get used to being vomited on, and um, you get immune to changing nappies. But um, no, we we love hanging out. Um, he, he's growing up really fast, and he's you know he's he's engaging in all the things I do. I play guitar for him, and he loves it, and he claps along. Um, so yeah, and just really enjoying it. It's it's taken a different spin on life. Like I was very always work focused, and now I trying to balance the two things as well. So um, yeah, it's definitely given me a, a few more gray hairs, but an enjoyable thing to um, to wake up to every day. That's awesome, mate. Congratulations. And um, in in terms of new spin on life how's this coronavirus period been you still working <laughs> from home yeah how's how's things been at the moment yeah so like a lot of industries it's totally flipped flipped the world upside down hasn't it so uh, my main role at university of new south wales um, where we do research um, for cancer patients uh, we have fully stopped seeing patients we've been at home for six months um, so all our studies looking at um, randomized trials of exercise or drugs to protect um, cancer patients against nerve damage, which we've been working on, it's all had to fully stop, unfortunately. Um, my other job, which I have a, a couple of hours of a clinic every week, is on telehealth. So I see patients over um, video calls. I've been doing that before COVID, and that's a fantastic service to, to offer to, to cancer patients because they can see an exercise professional in the comfort of their own home. So that hasn't changed. Um, but one other thing that has changed was um, my wife and son and I are supposed to be in the US right now for my fellowship, um, for the Fulbright Fellowship. So we were bags packed, car was, you know, was about to be sold and we were about to um, head overseas when, when COVID hit. So that's certainly changed for us. But on the flip side, like I've, I've gotten, um, you know, way better at guitar. I did one puzzle um, and uh, that's about it. But uh, besides that, like COVID hasn't, hasn't um, affected us too much. Yeah, well, uh, you know, doing your puzzle and your guitar, I think everyone's sort of picked up little little hobbies to sort of pass their time. We've sort of, Jack and I have picked up this podcast, you know, so that's our sort of little little project we're working on. But um, the main reason we, we wanted to get you on, um, I sort of spoke about it earlier, but, you know, you're, you've got a lot 
to your CV, your resume. And there's a lot of things you're doing. And one of those that you just mentioned was the, the Fulbright scholarship. And I think our audience would be really intrigued by this because I, I personally didn't really have much an idea of what it entailed. Um, but maybe for our listeners, could you give a bit more of a rundown on what, what the Fulbright scholarship that you're doing actually involves and what's the sort of the timeline been for you working on that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so the Fulbright Fellowship, it's, uh, it's a global exchange program, um, mostly with researchers, but, but for really from all different fields um, between the US and, all, and most of the countries in the world. So from Australia, we'll send about 30 or 40 different people over to the US every year, and they'll send some back to Australia as well. So it's a cross-cultural exchange. And the point really is to send um, researchers or other um, other professionals to the world leading institutions and learn from them. So I'm due to go to St. Jude's Children's Hospital where they're one of the top kids cancer centers in the world in terms of exercise research. And I was gonna spend a year with them learning from the best. And then the aim is to come back to Australia and implement that, that knowledge in my findings um, into the healthcare systems here and to, to help uh, improve the healthcare um, setting for Australian based cancer survivors. Um, and, and also to keep that link going with the world leading institutions um, in the hope of working together and um, again, improving the, the lives and, and clinical care of uh, future patients. So it's a really good opportunity um, to, to link with the best and to collaborate with some really bright minds. Um, so that's due to, yeah, it was due to be now, but hopefully next year as well, um, I can still go and um, get that fantastic opportunity. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic, mate. And, what what has it been like being able to I guess you know travel overseas and connect with other health professionals and sort of share your wisdom and sort of learn off others as well? What how different has that been from your traditional sort of postgraduate studies? I guess if you're an Australian just studying purely in Australia and not doing that that overseas sort of networking and travel. Yeah, it's such a good one. I, I I've really enjoyed my. A uh, few trips that I've done overseas. I've been to the UK and I've been to the US. Um, listen, I, I, I'm I'm a healthcare professional like you, and, and I'm just really passionate about learning and, and helping others. So when I went to the US, um, maybe it was about two years ago, I, I'm I'm very naive. I just walked into the. Um, I just I think I just emailed all these leading um, health professionals at the St. Jude's Hospital, and I said, "Can I just come visit? Can I can I volunteer at your center for a week?" I'd love to get to know, you know, how you do things just to learn from the best. And they said, you know what, what just come for a week. We'll set you up with meetings. Um, they took me into their lab. Um, I got to see all the studies that they were running. It was really fantastic. I was kind of like a celebrity in this um, hospital in, in the middle of Tennessee in, in Memphis. Um, and I'll tell you, like, U, U, US, um, a lot of uh, Americans are very happy to host Australians. So it was um, a really great opportunity. And, and, Beyond that as well, because this is research setting, they're very happy to share um, their knowledge and their learning. So they were really keen to collaborate and engage. Um, so that after that uh, visit that I had in, in 2018, I came home and that's when I decided to apply for this fellowship because I had that really good connection set up. Um, so that was that really promoted me. And, and I think it's a really important thing that um, health professionals need to be doing is to just put themselves out there and in, expand your networks and ask people, you know, how do you do things differently from how we're doing it here? Um, if you don't know about a particular condition or toxicity or side effect, uh, it's important to ask around your networks and 
that, that's really important in t- to your own learnings. Um, and you never know what can come of that. So for me, uh, just a, a cold email to, to one um, investigator in the US hospital ended up with a life-changing um, fellowship that I'm due to go on. So it's just, uh, I guess the key thing is just put yourself out there. Yeah, and I think it's, it's definitely shows that in now more than ever, um, it's vital that, you know, healthcare professionals around the world really uh, have that open line of communication. Um, and it's good to hear that, you know, they were keen to host you and, you know, show you through their processes. And because, um, you know, it's everyone can learn, you never stop learning, as you would know. Um, were there any sort of things that stood out for you that, um, really were different in terms of how they operated or how, were there any areas that they were much more like advanced or things that you, you really didn't know about when you like, you know, when they took you around um, the, the St. Jude's hospital there? I think uh, what, what surprised me is there was a lot of overlap in terms of what we're doing and what they're doing, which was really reassuring um, for me. Uh, in terms of kids' cancer research, there's not a lot of people in Australia that are in this field. Um, you know, it, it'd be under 10 that I know of. It, it, it's a very small field. But in, in that one hospital, there's about six or seven exercise physiologists specializing in this area. So it's nearly more than our whole country um, in one hospital. Um, what they do have, though, over what we have is a lot of resources. So they get a lot of funding, a lot of donations, a lot of government support that we don't get, which obviously helps to get their um, their services up and running. Um, but they have a lot of equipment that we wouldn't be able to get here in our country. So, um, you know, Hayden, you know about the VO2 max testing. That can be quite expensive and laborious to actually do routinely. But because they have such good facilities and so much um, funding, nearly all patients will come back and they'll do VO2 max testing. Um, they'll see about six or eight patients a day where that, you know, that's not possible here. Um, in Australia, in that population, but there's such a good relationship with the survivors um, that they come back for research every few years. They fly them back because they, they come from all over the country, and sometimes even Latin America. They fly them in um, and they house them. There's accommodation on campus, and they stay there for two or three days. They see their doctor routinely, but then they also do all the research projects. It can be up to two days of research. So it's, um, it's a phenomenal contribution back for these families that can be really tricky here in Australia to do research. Like for us, for example, we have um, three kids hospitals in New South Wales uh, and New South Wales is a very big place. So you might get, we might get kids from, you know, Wagga or Coffs Harbour or Canberra um, coming to Sydney Children's Hospital. So to be able to do good quality research in that population is very hard when people are coming from so far away. Uh, And the last thing they probably want to do is spend more time in the hospital or, or doing extra research. Um, so I think that's a big difference there, the, the engagement that they have there from their um, from their patients. Yeah, and that I guess for me, the sort of thing that sticks out there is the extra funding. I guess that lends itself more to developing your practical skills. And if you've got more, you know, more equipment, more funding, more hospitals, um, you know, that's only going to aid your your progression as a health professional and your ability to learn. So. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome insight there, mate. And uh, I guess the next thing that we want to do is just take a step back. So where did it all begin? Where did your initial passion for exercise physiology start? So I know that you obviously did your undergraduate. Can you give us a bit of 
an understanding and sort of the timeline, why you fell into it into the first place and what was it all about for you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so probably like yourselves, I, I was always an avid sportsman. Uh, I loved my sport. I was a keen soccer player, a goalkeeper mainly. Uh, I was a runner, cricketer, uh, touch footy player. Uh, only, yeah, yeah, most that's probably most of the sports for now. Um, but I, and I always wanted to help people. You know, when I was even a teenager, I, I learned how to strap ankles and, and do sort of first aid. Um, so I guess for me, it was just combining those things. Um, so when I started the degree, it actually wasn't called exercise physiology. It was health and exercise science. It was quite broad. I didn't even know what that meant, but it had my two passions together. Um, and only I guess once I got through that degree, it started dawning on me that it's an exciting thing that you can help people with applying your passion for, for sport and your motivation to be active. And that's such a good medicine to offer people because it's cheap, it's free, it can be free. Um, and there's just so many peripheral benefits from being physically active to the extent that it should just be routinely prescribed to the whole general population. If that was the case, then we'd be a, a much fitter, better, happier um, nation with much lower costs and um, you know, to the Medicare system. Uh, in terms of the exercise oncology, uh, how I got into my uh, cancer research, um, that was, I guess, a bit more of a stroke of luck for me. So I was finishing my degree and I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And one of the professors um, then says, suggested, well, you can do research. It, it never even crossed my mind, but just a conversation with him, he suggested you can do research. We've got one project going. Uh, it's a cancer project. That's literally it. I, I didn't have a, a big interest in it because we didn't receive that much training in it in, in my undergrad. Um, not many of the unis had much training at the time. Some are slowly now doing more and more cancer. So I was quite curious. I was like, there's a lot of cancer patients we know. Uh, why aren't they doing exercise? So I did this project looking at uh, prescribing exercise for women with ovarian cancer during chemotherapy. And it's a very sick population. I worked with the advanced cancer population. So the average survival rate is, one, is about one to two years. It's quite a poor prognosis. And in, the, in that study, it was, it was a great study to do. It was, it was a difficult study to do, but we found that the women actually received such good benefit from participating in terms of cardiovascular function and strength um, and quality of life. Uh, and they enjoyed the study uh, and it really opened my eyes in terms of this should be done more. This isn't done enough. Um, you know, all cancer survivors need, need to receive this kind of support. So and that, that, that master's really um, solidified my engagement with um, working in the oncology space. Um, and again, it just opened my eyes to, to, to the fact that more, more cancer survivors should be exercising and, and be receiving at least education or individualized support from exercise professionals um, because we know that they're going to improve so many facets that are um, impaired or reduced because of their cancer and their treatment. And so what is your actual involvement as an exercise physiologist in the in the treatment of the individual who's going through their their cancer treatment or their chemotherapy because obviously we have and I, I know we discussed this before we actually came on air today but a lot of the time as EPs we're asked you know are you a are you a physiotherapist are you a personal trainer so what is the actual role of an EP more broadly and more specifically how do you involve yourself with that patient when they're undergoing their, their treatment? 
Yeah, some good questions. So as an exercise physiologist, that is a question that you will get a lot. What, what exactly is an exercise physiologist? And and for me, it's just um, generally explaining that we're uh, a allied health, university qualified exercise professional. Uh, we prescribe exercise for people with a variety of different conditions uh, using safe and evidence-based um, uh, research to, to promote um, behavior change in, in a safe and effective way. Uh, so for me, in terms of uh, how I manage uh, exercise for cancer patients at whatever stage they are during treatment, before surgery or after treatment, um, it's working with that that individual patient um, based on the needs that they have and also their exercise history and their goals um, that they are trying to achieve. So for patients during treatment, there are a lot of more safety considerations than those who are after treatment in general. Um, patients who are during treatment can become immunocompromised, which means they're prone to infections. So um, things like exercising in busy gyms or swimming pools might not be appropriate for them if they're at increased risk. So you have to be a bit more flexible with what you do. So more like at-home programs or walking-based programs um, are important. Because um, as a health professional, the last thing you want to do is put a, um, a patient at more at increased risk of anything else going wrong. Um, another really important thing is, I guess, a behavioral change or motivational change perspective. A lot, a lot of previously active people who have now uh, going through cancer treatment, they want to still be able to do exactly what they were doing before treatment. But realistically, cancer treatment is, is quite an overwhelming and, and, and large you know, life change. You might have had a, a surgery, then chemo and a lifestyle change and radiation. There's a lot of things going on. So it's really about changing expectations about or managing expectations about what someone is able to do. And even small, small bouts of exercise can, can make a big difference in terms of reducing fatigability, um, you know, building up stamina, functional capacity. Um, so a lot of this also comes down to an educational component. So for some people who are normally exercisers, they're very easy to convince to get back to being active. But for someone who's just say like an older patient had never been active in their life um, and then they've, you know, been referred to myself as a lot of educational component about, you know, this is safe and, and why would this be beneficial? Um, so those first few weeks can be difficult. Um, and especially over the video consults that I have, when you're not physically there with someone to do the training, that's it's another um, layer of complexity. Um, but it's something that you get over to get together, you get through together. So essentially, you, you're, you know, you're on the same team. And that's something that I try to reassure patients that I'm on the same team with them. I'm, I'm happy to help them on their journey into improving their, you know, their physical and psychological well-being. all things that we know that exercise has been shown to, to improve in um, plenty of research. Uh, and then we, and another, you know, educational thing that we know that active patients are, um, are known to, to live longer, lower chances of the cancer returning. Um, these are all really important clinical outcomes um, that uh, are important to, to portray to patients and important for the cancer doctors to be portraying to their patients as well. So I often find as, a, as an EP working in this space that if the doctor is supportive of it, it's very easy to convince a patient to be active. But if the doctor hasn't said anything at all, it, it makes it a lot more difficult. So if you get buy-in from the treating clinician or the whole center, it definitely makes um, the job a lot more, uh, I guess, easy to, to, to assist patients in in becoming more active. Have you found that being one of the main challenges in your field is that 
as you said, uh, as Hayden would have asked before, you know, a lot of people wouldn't fully understand that the, um, you know, what exercise physiologists actually like their purpose, like their role is compared to, you know, a doctor. Everyone knows what a doctor is and what they're there to do. Um, as you just mentioned, they sort of trust the word of the doctor, um, you know, more so in most situations. Would that be right? And is that a, a challenge you've um, found, is, you know, throughout your career? I think, I think initially it was, um, but also at the same time, we're seeing more and more the message of exercise it being good for all sorts of conditions is becoming more and more common in the media, um, you know, cancer council, uh, as more research comes out, it's being supported a lot more by the general community. So it's not like when you do have those conversations, it's, it doesn't come off as, as such a random out there topic um, lately, which is a fantastic thing with increasing awareness. Um, so I definitely think it's building up momentum. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely finding that patients are generally um, more aware that it's good for them and, and probably more doctors are suggesting that it's, it's good for them um, more and more each year, which is great. You know, we're seeing um, the release of position statements by, you know, large institutions. COSA is Australia's peak body for oncology. ESSA is Australia's peak body for exercise physiology. Um, American College of Sports Medicine. All these institutions are supporting the role of exercise in cancer care. So when you have these big institutions, um, you know, pushing for it to be, um, you know, standard of care or at least discussed, uh, it has a whole lot more weight um, for patients and for the medical community to the extent that if, if the medical community are not, um, you know, providing this best practice and evidence-based care, then it's, you know, not, it's doing a disservice to their own patients. Um, so it's really, um, you know, a small, a small thing that they can be encouraging because it's another thing that patients can control, you know, like we know that patients can control their health by being active. It's, it's something that they can, they can take a charge of. And that's something that um, a lot of my patients said to me, they said, I, I feel good that I've, this is something that I can do. You know, they're not relying on a pill. They're not relying on the doctor to do something to them. They can go out for a walk. They can do their home-based exercise. And once they start getting into the habit of it and building up their strength and confidence in, in what they can do, that's a really important thing. So it's definitely something that's um, becoming more and more common. And hopefully, the, you know, the goal for me one day is that there's more exercise professionals in hospitals, you know, is better funded by the government because the cost-benefit ratio is just so much, um, you know, more leading to the way of the more active and healthy people, uh, less of a cost burden to the medical yeah. system. You know, like for, for an example here, like if, if someone is in hospital for, for three months for a bone marrow transplant and they leave hospital three days earlier because they're fitter and healthier and can tolerate all their symptoms better, that saves the government thousands of dollars. Um, you know, it doesn't cost them a lot to prescribe exercise. So if you do that on large scale, thousands of patients all leaving a few days earlier, um, you know, you can do the maths there and that's, that's saving a whole lot of money for the taxpayer. Yeah, I guess those those indirect costs, you know, like moving away from that Band-Aid solution and um, trying to get people healthy so we avoid those, you know, those diseases in the first place like cancer and diabetes and those sort of chronic conditions. Um, in that same sort of stream of thought, we were talking about your collaboration with the general practitioner. How do people actually go about accessing an accredited exercise physiologist? Because we know obviously there's 
the chronic disease management plan, um, which these individuals can get in touch with their GP and discuss with them about accessing an AEP or an accredited dietitian or, you know, credential diabetes educator or podiatrist. Um, do you have any more on that? And you know how the process for which how someone would access yourself or someone like yourself? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. So I guess there's a few different avenues. The main one, like you just um, mentioned, is about the chronic disease management plan, uh, which is accessed through the GP. One of the issues that we're finding quite commonly working in a cancer center is that the specialists actually can't refer directly to an EP. They have to send them back to their GP. And mm. a lot of these patients, they may not have seen a GP for a long time or even have their own GP. So that's a real barrier to, you know, patients actually going to see the, the EP because they have to do an extra visit. Um, so that's, that's one difficulty in, in, in the whole space. Um, pay, conversely, patients can see EPs privately without the, the care plan. The, the care plan as well, just to note, it, it is five sessions, which can be used all for an exercise physiologist. But like you said, it, it's got to be split across dietitian and, and other health professionals. So it, it goes somewhere, but it doesn't go as far as it, as it could. So it would be nice if there was more sessions like diabetic patients can ex access extra sessions. Um, so in the future, it'd be great if um, you know, the same thing would apply in cancer patients. Um, yeah, there's definitely, I think a lot of private health funds as well have exercise physiology um, as, as, um, as a benefit. So it's, it'd be good to chat with your own private health uh, fund and see if it, it funds you. And also a lot of uh, life insurance um, and workers' comp uh, insurance um, policies uh, will cover um, exercise physiology services. So the, the company that I do um, telehealth consults for Valium Health, um, we, I see a lot of patients who have been diagnosed and they're, they have a life insurance policy, for example, and that will pay for, um, you know, a few sessions with me, a few sessions with dietitians and a few sessions with psychologists, because the aim is to get the person back to, you know, feeling as good and fit and healthy as they can, but maybe they can go back to work quicker. Um, or maybe they, they, they spend less on their insurance premiums in the future. So it actually saves the insurer money as well. And they're happy. it's a win-win for everyone. They spend less and the person is healthier and, and feels better. Um, so there's definitely a few different avenues to go by. Um, but I, I do think that there is still uh, an issue in terms of how patients are referred. It's not commonly done enough. Um, we know that the referral pathways aren't fantastic. Um, generally between some hospitals in the community. Most, most hospitals don't have EPs in-house, uh, but a handful do. Um, I think ESSA, on ESSA's website, uh, Exercise Sports Science Australia, there's a find an EP um, section. So you can look up an EP in your area that way. Um, but discussing with the GP is, is often a good place to start. Um, so there's just a few different ways to access an, an EP. Uh, or, or, or a physio as well. Like if you have other needs, more acute needs as well, physio with experience in cancer care is also useful. You're listening to Normless, a podcast hosted by Hayden Kelly and Jack Hasler. In order to stay up to date with the latest news about the podcast, please follow us at Normals Podcast across all social media platforms. 
If we now take a step forward in the direction of your PhD, so we know that you did your postgraduate from 2012 to 2014, is that correct? Probably correct, yep. Yep. And then you sort of- A while ago now. And then you moved into your um, study looking at um, cancer survivors and particularly women undergoing chemo with ovarian cancer. Can you sort of maybe tell us a bit more what specifically you were looking at with those studies? What sort of markers and what, I guess, what were the age of these individuals? What were some of the conclusions you drew from from this research? Yep. So for that research, um, so generally what you do in the research is, is you have a look at uh, what are the deficits that they have from treatment. Um, and many of these we know uh, exercise can help in the general population. So things like, um, you know, with intensive treatment, women have, or any, people with intensive treatment have reduced um movement so they have less uh, reduced cardiac function so we know that when people survive treatment their, their hearts you know can pump less they're generally weaker and they're more prone to cardiovascular disease and that can be quite common so we look at their heart function i think we did um submax uh testing to look at their cardiovascular function uh we looked at their muscle strength um, because muscle strength is very much lost um with prolonged treatment um we looked at balance. So a lot of patients with particular types of chemotherapy uh, can have nerve damage and the nerve damage can uh, reduce sensation in the feet. So um, that can make people uh, prone to balance issues. And when you have older patients, postmenopausal, um, osteoporotic patients who are increased risk of having a fracture, and then if you throw in balance deficits, it's a recipe for disaster. So we needed to measure their balance and see where they're at. And we also did balance training to, to, to assist these patients and women in uh, improving their balance and stability and coordination to reduce the risk of them having a fall. Um, what else did we look at? We looked at a range of questionnaires because we know that um, these patients can be prone to fatigue and sleep disturbances. Um, so these, these patients were sleeping like three or four hours a night because of their chemotherapy, because of the psychological distress. Um, and again, we, we'd measure them all after uh, this exercise program. So we'd measure them. We would give them exercise program individualized to their needs within a framework. So everyone will get a component of strength exercise. Um, everyone will get a component of aerobic exercise and everyone will get a component of balance exercise with stretching, uh, as well. Uh, I think the program was for 12 weeks. Um, and then we measure them again at the end. So it was a component of home and, um, in the clinic exercise, we offered it both to them. Um, depends on what they were interested in or had available. Some of these people were still going back to work and some weren't. Uh, and some, you know, coming back to the clinic was, was quite a big mission for them. Um, so I think it's important to be flexible in your prescriptions. Um, but we did find um, that the patients who were in the study, they, were, they had improved cardiovascular fitness, improved muscle strength, reduced fatigue. And this isn't just unique to my study. This is, this is um, consistent across many different studies um, and much larger studies. I'll, I'll disclose that my study was a small single arm study, not compared to control groups. In terms of precise science, there are much bigger and, and larger and more controlled studies out there that do confirm my findings. Um, but the problem again with these research projects is once I stopped my master's project, um, because uh, it wasn't a, a you know funded position, that that service would just stop, and um, which is really unfortunate. So all the patients, I think there's about 30 in my study, um, 
they got the benefit. And then anyone who was diagnosed after um, my study had completed, they, they weren't offered the same, um, you know, free and pretty, um, you know, pretty good detailed service, which is quite unfortunate. Yeah, and, and you mentioned there as well about um, the implementation of the home-based programs um, and about the technology that, that was used there. Um, could you just give, give us a, a bit more of an insight around that? Um, because obviously it must have been more challenging not having access to, you know, uh, a clinic. But what was involved in the technology side of things in the home, home setting? Yeah, so I think back in in my study that I did that it was it was probably quite low budget as a master's student we didn't have much access to funding. I think we were literally just doing phone calls. We'd send patients off with therabands, so elastic bands for resistance training are, are very cheap, um, cost effective, um, and portable solution at doing exercise. So they were fantastic. I take them on on holiday sometimes, or even if I've got like an injury or something, they're, they're really good for rehab. Um, in terms of what I'm currently doing now at the moment for my, you know, cause it, in about the eight or nine years since I've done that research, technology has advanced and become more accessible. Um, so in our program for Valiant Health, we, we provide all patients with Fitbits um, and they're fantastic. Fitbits are really good. Um, a good way of motivating people to keep active. They get direct feedback in terms of, you know, how many steps they're doing or cal- calories they're burning. Um, but that information feeds into our portal so we can see, uh, how many steps are they doing? So we can track them. It's really good, you know, biotechnology um, as a as a method for us to motivate them or them to motivate themselves. Um, so technology is a really, uh, you know, increasing way uh, of of motivating patients and keeping them accountable. Um, so I think we've seen an explosion of the apps space as well. Um, you know, YouTube videos have been fantastic way of um, you know delivering. Uh, videos and, 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 um, you know, guided, uh, programs, uh, obviously you don't have that one-on-one, you can't give the feedback if technique isn't there, but it's definitely a start, um, and a great way in, 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 you know, teaching people things that they can do safely in their own home. So I think COVID is, you know, in that sense, it's been a blessing in disguise. It's taught us all to pivot and sort of think a little bit outside the box and, and how can we deliver, you know, uh, health services to people in the comfort of their own home. And these are people that, you know, having to go to the hospital so many times for, for, for cancer treatment and appointments, um, you know, if you can make their life that, that one bit more convenient for them by, you know, avoiding an extra visit, you know, and financially catching a bus or taxi or petrol, um, by delivering services in their own home, uh, it, it really is a fantastic way um, to deliver healthcare. So COVID has definitely helped the medical community in that capacity. I guess, I guess we've like as you said, we've all opened our eyes to, you know, being more versatile with with our exercise prescription as well. I think using things like bottles of water, bags of rice, um, you know, f- filling up your bottle with sand or things like that to use makeshift weights or like dumbbells and hand weights, um, you know, using your, your own body weight to do things like sit to stands or squats, lunges, you know, walking upstairs. I think if anything, this COVID-19 has made people realize the importance of being active and what they can do without a gym membership. We were talking to one of our recent guests or our first guest on on the podcast and we were saying that potentially, you know, after this whole COVID-19 is, thing is over, 
people might not actually go back to the gyms because they've realized that they can go for their run or their walk. They can ride their bike. They can go swimming. They can do resistance bands in their home. They can do squats at home, use hand weights. So yeah, I really think it's been a bit of a blessing in disguise. Um, would you would you agree with me on that in terms of you know how yeah, we shift? I mean, like this this I think I definitely do think I agree. There, there's certainly a, a population of people that you know probably don't have to have an expensive gym membership, especially if they're using lighter weights as well, and if they're self self sufficient. Um, like you said, there's so much that you can do at home with just body weights. Uh, or walking or resistance bands and tins, that stuff's always been there. And I guess people just need to be guided first in terms of how to correctly, you know, lift, lift those weights um, and then, or, or the body weight. Um, but I guess that there always probably will be a demand for anyone who has, uh, is lifting heavier weights and does need that or want that heavier equipment um, or is, you know, stronger people doing, doing I guess, heavier lifting, yep. there is going to be a, a component for them. But like you said, that, I definitely think that there is a, a shift in terms of people realizing that they can do all these different things um, from the comfort of their own home. But I think just the way we work is is different. So, you know, we might, we're probably not going to have as many busy meetings. We're going to have more, um, you know, we've at the uni, we've shifted so many meetings virtually that now people can attend from all over the country, uh, which is fantastic. Um, we delivered a webinar on childhood cancer and exercise um, in about June and we had um, we had people from about twenty different countries dialing in, wow. um, and we would never have yeah we would never have even thought to do a webinar um, in the past because uh, this was supposed to be a meeting um, at a conference we were supposed to have this this uh, I guess uh, presentation but because of COVID we had to go online and I popped it on my Twitter and I, yeah we had people from all over the world dial in so it was a fantastic way for us to get our research out there and um, link with researchers and clinicians and just interested people from all over the world. So in that capacity, COVID has been great, um, a great way for people to link. Yeah. It's definitely been an interesting. Yeah. I guess, I guess horses for courses really, you know, you've got um, the people who benefit more from home-based exercise, but then you've got your, your athletes or your, your professional sportsmen and women who probably need that, that extra stimulus that not, that a gym gym based setting would provide as opposed to being at home, you know, needing more equipment and heavier loads. So, um, but yeah, so I think, I think we've touched on that sort of really nicely sort of terms of what you've done in the past, you know, the role of an EP and your passion. But I think for those who might be interested, um, what can you talk a bit more about the process behind doing a PhD so what actual level of study do you need? Is it a master's? You know, can you get into a PhD without doing a master's? What, what is the actual um, process? You know, how long does it take? Is there anything there that you can sort of educate our listeners on? Yeah, so I guess I'll put a disclosure that when I was in my undergrad or even at school, I, I never, ever considered myself doing a PhD. It's something that um, a door that sort of opened along the way um, in my career and I was happy to walk through it. Um, but I was not one of those people that's saying that this is always what I want to do. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of the requirements, so it probably differs by each uni. I think at UNSW, you have to have at least an honours or a master's completed to, to apply, um, which I had at the time. Um, they generally take between three and four years. 
And um, at least in Australia, it's very much research only focused. Whereas in uh, America, I think it also has some coursework attached to it. So they, they give you about three or four years and, they, and, and it's quite a blank slate. It's, uh, it goes along the lines of figure out the problem, solve the problem. That's it. So you've got some mentors, there's some you know, short courses along the way and statistics or writing that the uni offers, which is great. Uh, but otherwise, you know, you've got to go out there and figure it out. You've got to read into the literature, um, you know, write re reviews and then, um, then get your study up and running and seeing the patients, then do all the data analysis and all the writing. Um, and then hopefully go and present at some conferences along the way. So essentially you're doing the job of, as a, as a full blown researcher, which is what I'm doing now. It's, it's the same thing, but it's essentially your training. Um, so it's, it's a really good concept. So I guess I'll tell you how I got into doing a PhD in this specific field. Um, so after my master's, I got a job at the Sydney Children's Hospital as a clinical research associate. So th what that is, is someone who runs clinical trials for, uh, for any condition. So I was running clinical trials for kids with cancer, nothing to do with exercise, but I was involved with, um, getting over the line, new drugs or, or existing drugs, um, to be accessed by patients and families involved in research. But whilst I was working there, I noticed that, um, like the other populations to cancer, we know that, um, you know, there's going to be physical deficits, but these kids weren't getting exercise prescription. They weren't getting exercise advice and there was no exercise physiologist. So I was still working at doing this clinical research role. And I was thinking, hello, why is this service not being offered? Uh, you know, we know that it can probably help. And luckily there was a couple of, uh, clinicians there that were supportive of exercise. And when I would speak to them, they would say, well, you know, this could be a potential PhD topic for you to do. Not many people in the world are doing it um, for various reasons. I guess logistically, it's a tricky population to work with, but we know that kids should be running around and being active. You know, kids want to be kicking a ball and, and, and they don't want to be sitting in a hospital bed. So um, that stemmed me to, to investigate if it's possible for me to do a PhD um, in that particular field. And because I had done a master's already before, I was already quite an independent researcher. I knew what I was in for. So when I went into the PhD, I, you know, I already had a bit of the skills and the background and, and um, expertise to, um, you know, run some more research projects. Um, but I was really keen and, and interested to learn and, and, and to run some projects. And I got a lot of support from the families involved because at the end of the day, these families, they also want to receive some support and, and individualized guidance. Um, you know, they, most of them said to me, this is something we've never been offered before. And we were great to get either reassurance if the kid is, um, you know, doing quite well physically when, when I assess them, or they receive some personalized advice if the kid was, you know, less active or less fit because at the end of the day, these children, because of their treatment, are at higher risk of developing cardiovascular and metabolic conditions. So if we can get them active, maybe we can help to reduce the chances of that happening. So it was definitely a passionate area to work with. Um, and the PhD got to facilitate that. I got to see the patients from a clinical perspective, but then I also got to do research on top of that. So in my experience of clinical research, you actually get to see the patients and then document what you're doing. So it's quite a rewarding way to do it. I think it's great that uh, the work you do whilst you're still you know, studying can actually impact uh, the real world, I guess, you know, because a lot of uh, courses, whether that be business um, or the arts, you know, it's sort of, 
uni-based and then it stays within that and doesn't really go outside of those walls. Whereas, you know, you're actually doing a proper, um, you know, research uh, project that, you know, as you just said, is changing, you know, the lives of uh, children and, and, their, and their families. And in terms of, as you just said, um, the funding, is that done by uh, the uni itself or is it, it supported by uh, certain organisations, you know, um, third parties or the government or how does that work? Yes. So I guess it works in a couple of ways. So firstly, um, the Australian government, um, they fund research positions here in Australia, which is great. Um, you know, I think it's probably something like $30,000 a year normally. Um, but because, you know, if you're, if you qualify uh, under like Australia or getting a visa, the government supports it. So the degree is completely free, which is fantastic in the States. You know, you could be up for, for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars for the same thing. Um, but then also on top of that, you can qualify for a scholarship, uh, again, mostly from the government, but also some institutions offer, uh, a scholarship. So you get a tax-free stipend. Um, you know, it's not as much as a full-time job for the same level, but it certainly is something enough to get you by, um, and keep on going. So that was helpful. And then on the side, I, I would see some patients online and then I'd do a bit of teaching like Hayden, you know, I was teaching you for a little bit. I hope you got a good experience out of that. But a lot of, um, a lot of research students, they will teach because they're already at the uni anyway and in that same system. Um, so they'll do some lecturing or tutorials and labs um, as well. Yeah, no, I, I had a really good time with you as my tutor. You know, I thought we enjoyed ourselves. We had a lot of banter about the manly seagulls, which was good fun, you know, <laughs> kept things quite lighthearted. Um, yeah. Like like you're a good tutor for me, how do you find a good supervisor for your project? That, that really, um, and from what I've learned and from what I've just, um, I guess, had the experience from with other research students, that probably is the main main thing that you've got to, target so you know it's really important to have a, a topic area that you're interested in but if you're going to spend three to four years on the same project um you know you want to make sure you have a really good relationship with your supervisor uh, and really transparent from the beginning so i think it's really important to be have transparent open and honest conversations with someone from the start um you know with expectations you know what are you going to get from them if they're a super really like if they're a super busy hotshot professor that has no time for their students or they have 20 students, you know, realistically, you're not going to get a lot of time with them. And when you're a research student, you're really at the bottom of the pile to be completely honest. So um, it's important that you have, you manage your own expectations. Um, so I ended up picking um, a few supervisors. I had, I had four supervisors actually, cause you can, you can have, you know, different levels of supervisors. And I picked um, a mentor for me who was a, um, a, a a lecturer at University of New South Wales, uh, David Simar, who was not like he was in my topic topic area slightly, but it was more that he was just a really nice guy, a good researcher, a good mentor, gave good advice. He, you know, he told me how it was, um, and and to me that was quite important. Um, and then I had other researchers as well as as mentors. Claire Wakefield is just super motivating. Uh, same sort of thing. Always kept me on track. Um, when I would have our meetings. Um, so that's a really important thing. If you can't get that good mentor from the beginning, I'd say shop around and that's really important. Um, I, I also at the same time of considering my PhD at um, UNSW, I was com 
I was also considering a PhD through a, a Queensland institution uh, and, a, and a topic in ovarian cancer, which I was really, really keen to pursue because it was one of the key leaders in the world actually working in this institution. But it would have been completely by distance because they lived, you know, not in Sydney. So for me, weighing up those two things, I, I really wanted to do that project. Um, you know, that, that potential isolation was it ended up being one of the reasons that I didn't end up going with that project. Um, so it's really important to have someone that you can work with really well, can get the best out of you and keep you on track, um, you know, and, and give you the feedback and, and guidance that you need. I guess the other thing is the traveling abroad. So you, as, as you said, you, you've been over to St. Jude's Hospital and worked a bit there. Did the University of New South Wales fund any of your overseas travel to any extent? And what's the sort of... Um, you know what? It, what do you expect around your P, doing your PhD? What funding is there for that sort of thing? Yeah, so it, it generally differs uni to uni, and maybe COVID has had an impact on this going forward. I'm not so sure, um, but a lot of um, unis do support their postgrad students going overseas if they have a, a conference presentation. So for all my trips abroad, I would be presenting. Um, either a, a, a podium presentation or a poster presentation at a particular conference. So in the US, I think I had two conferences, one in Chicago, one in Minneapolis around the same time. So I could go for the same trip, which is really good. Um, in the UK, I went to Manchester and had a poster presentation there. And I've been all around Australia as well. So generally, if you're, if you're presenting, the uni is very happy to support you um, because, you know, it gets their name out there. It helps develop you. It's a very small investment on their behalf um, for you to go to these um, these things as well. So they generally cover it. Um, there's generally just enough to get you to like a, a very, very, um, you know, low cost motel type of thing. Like, you know, they're not paying for you to stay in a five-star hotel, but it's enough to get by. And that's the important thing. Um, so for some of these conferences I've, I've gone to and I've, I've known people there, which is fantastic. And then other times you go and you're the only one that you know, and that's, that's quite difficult as a postgrad student because, um, you know, a lot of the time, you, you know, you're just, you're there and it's, you know, 5,000 person conference and you don't know anyone and, and networking is really important. Um, it, it's even, you know, it's probably even more important than the lectures that you go to and, and listen to at these conferences. So it's really important, um, if you can build up your networks and, and, and chat with people and um, build up your community, which is, you know, how I got to end up going to St. Jude's um, basically in the first place. Um, so yeah, the, I guess going back to your question, the uni is generally quite supportive and, and that really helps to make a difference. Once you get, once you sort of progress a little bit more, it starts to get more difficult. Um, they invest a lot in postgrad students. Once you become a postdoc or an, or an academic, generally you have to get your own funding or you compete for funding to go away in these conferences. So it can be a little bit more difficult if you do get conferences, um, a conference presentation. Um, so it, like at my level now, it, it can be a bit more problematic um, because you are competing with other people. So it's a bit trickier. And at the end of the day, you don't really want to pay out of your own pocket to go and present the work of, of your you and your uni um, for an overseas conference. And to, you know, it's, it, it's not really a feasible solution. Yeah, definitely. And, and as you just said, you know, it brings together, oh, it brought together a lot of people from all over the world. Um, do you, it's going back, we're going back a fair bit now, but um, any, any uh, you know, people from 
countries that um, you met that really surprised you about the the extent of their program or anything they were doing differently or people that, you know, um, you're just like, wow, it's crazy that, you know, it's so far away uh, across the world, you know, halfway across the world, world in Australia that, you know, we're doing similar things or... Yeah, I, I, nothing that stands out to the top of my head, but I do have um, like one recollection um, of a com- the conference I had in Manchester when I was by myself. I remember I was in the lift. I met another guy there and, and the lift was closing and he had the, the lanyard on from the conference. And, I was, and at the end of the day, I quickly caught the lift and I said, do you mind if I catch up with you and your colleagues for dinner? Because I'm by myself here. So he's from Spain, from the from from the coast of or the coast of Spain, an oncologist, and and when I told him about my project, because he was an oncologist and they were all nurses and doctors, they were they were so impressed with the fact that we we're doing exercise during chemotherapy for for ovarian cancer, the the type of cancer that he treats. Um, they don't have that service there, and he wasn't even routinely recommending it. Um, but after chatting with me, he, he said this is definitely something that they can be doing. He just wasn't aware of the evidence. Uh, and that can be common, you know, like the doctors, they have to be so across all the different, um, you know, uh, different evidence in, in, in what sort of things the patient should be doing. They can't know everything. Um, so just giving him that awareness of, of, of what I've been doing uh, and what he can suggest to his patients definitely at least had the light bulb moment in his head to say, well, at least he can uh, recommend that. So, um, you know, that was a good eye-opening moment for, for me as a postgrad student to say that, Hey, well, hang on a minute. I, I actually have a bit of power here that I can help educate clinicians, which is a weird concept when you're trying to, when you're talking to professors, I brought that home as well. So when I had a conference in Brisbane, um, I remember meeting a, uh, oncologist from Canberra hospital and he loved the work as well. He said, how, how can we do this here in Canberra? Um, so just that one conversation with him, we set up my study to run out of a, a hospital in, in Canberra and we, he recruited another five participants. Um, and again, like I, I'm just YOLOing it here. I'm just, I'm just a, you know, a, a young <laughs> clinician researcher, just, just trying to help people um, and just learning how the whole world works really. But if you want to help the world make a difference and others do as well, you can certainly make that happen with, with good collaborative work. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Normless with David Misrahi. You can listen to the previous episode with Men of League Northern Sydney Chairman Trevor Bailey and other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Normless is recorded out of Sydney, Australia. Episodes are written, produced, hosted and edited by myself, Jack Hasler and Hayden Kelly. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Normals Podcast. So you can stay up to date with episode releases and content. And if you only have a little bit of spare time right now, that's okay. Check out the Normals YouTube channel for episode highlights. If you or anyone you know has a story that would be perfect for the podcast, please reach out to us through normalspodcast at gmail.com.